0: here we are saturday evening saturday evening. august 29th ninth, eight forty seven. we have just returned from our little curbside dinner experience i liked it we went down to 280 to an italian restaurant and ate in the parking lot and listened to the interview that i recorded yes. with regina and norman golar i was very pleased with that interview i think that they're fantastic people and that's what we'll be sharing with everybody coming up here in a few minutes Good, but good. before that, I just kind of want to talk about what's been going on these last two weeks since our our opening episode to season two. You've been, you launched your podcast. How has that been going?
1: I launched the audio parlor. It has done modest to well. I won't say how many downloads it's gotten, but suffice to say, for the lack of advertising knowledge I have, it worked out pretty well. I have an idea for an additional update that I want to do between that first premiere and my originally planned next upload. So I might upload again with that additional episode, not this Monday, but the coming Monday. So that would be the
0: the 7th. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited. I have three interviews lined up. Love One it. tomorrow with a former student of mine, Lily Haley and then i have another one with this guy that i met in atlanta a few years ago who he's originally from bangkok and he's back in bangkok now and he is a virologist he studies viruses sounds right so i think it will be interesting to talk to him so it's my first international interview and Stacey beam a friend from high school who is now an artist and he's a musician and he's just a very creative interesting person so i'll be talking with three three p- different people Uh, Over the coming couple of weeks. The other thing I've done in the last couple of weeks, I did complete my COVID binge of what I always want to call Circle of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I was not disappointed by the final season. I'm not going to give any spoilers here. I did not watch it myself, though,
1: because of the YouTube circles I carry in. I know of the discourse, and from what I can tell, you did not share the same angst the discourse did at the time. I
0: know, I know. It's been a fun two weeks, and I started back to school. The classes seem to be a little bit, maybe enrollments down a little bit at my college. I'm not really sure but it is a different experience to start out with everybody online, and I did have my first Zoom session with one of my classes the other day, and there were about there were over 30 people there, which is the largest number of people I've had in a Zoom class. <laughs> over the summer, like two or three people would show up.
1: Well, it's fall. You've got all those eager freshmen who are that's just true. like, this is the way it is now.
0: And that's one of the things that I talk about with Regina and Norman. We talk a good bit about teaching during the pandemic. And I think that that part of the conversation was really interesting and will be very interesting to a lot of the people I know who also teach because we all have our different approaches to how to do this, but we're all trying to figure it out. It's not the same. As someone who's taught online for a long time, over a decade, teaching right now online is not quite the same thing. Right. Because the students are coming at it with different expectations It's a different
1: population than you'd usually get.
0: Right. So we talk about that some in the interview. Another thing that I really enjoy in the interview that's coming up is the way Regina talks about the importance of language and what she brings up the concept of bi dialectalism, which I have a hard time saying. I always teach my my students, I'm (laughs) Sean Connery, I always teach my students about code shifting or code switching. But we did talk a lot about that and about how important it is, in her view, for students to be able to adapt to different speaking environments and speaking cultures. So that was also interesting, and I was also really interested in what she talked, how she talks about the way her church has had to adapt. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that maybe some of us don't think about as much as the other institutions and groups d- had to do the same thing that education has done mm-hmm. you have to be interviewing online right
1: yes yes
0: so it's affected everything even the way you apply and interview for for jobs mm-hmm. one of the things I, I i'm looking forward to with this interview is i hope that it might spark some more conversations with more of my fellow teachers and maybe do us uh, some more interviews with other teachers
1: mm-hmm.
0: anything else exciting happen to you this past two weeks
1: um, uh, well, I was in a position, and I left that position.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, lovely people just didn't work out. Um, I have other things lined up, and some recruiters I've been in touch with are starting to see things flow in, so I don't think it'll be too long. Oh,
0: you'll be fine. Um, you always bounce
1: back. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, I played around in Inkscape a little bit and made this really nice design. I
0: love that design. Yes.
1: Um, with that with that extra episode of the audio parlor I'm planning of, I took some pictures of the comic book character and I fiddled around with them, did some mirroring. It, an experienced user could probably do it in 10 minutes. I, I did it in an hour and okay. it was nice. It I looks like great. It. Thank you. You can find it on my Facebook and on my Twitter.
0: There you go. And that is by uh, uh, searching...
1: Well, the Facebook is John Fox Williams, and the Twitter is at Fox East 52, Fox the Jackal.
0: There you go. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was going to tell you, I know that you got a thing about promoting your podcast through the platform that you're hosting it on. And my apartment complex, the people who manage it, I think they're out of North Carolina. They saw that I record the podcast here and they wanted to promote it. So you've been found out. I know. That's great. (laughs) I mean, I don't make any money off of it, but if I can get a bigger audience, that's great. Sure. The one thing I wanted to say before we move on to this wonderful interview with my two friends, Regina and Norman Golar, is (laughs) it brought back so many memories talking to them about grad school. I think that I agree with Regina. She talks about what a great time it was. I I had a good time in my last two years of high school. And I had a lot of fun in my undergraduate years. But those those two years in grad school were so special to me, even though I did go a little crazy. I had the my major nervous breakdown when I was in grad school at Snow Hinton Park in Tuscaloosa. I was walking and listening to Cher, if I could turn back time, and I had a panic attack. And I had never had one like that before. And I thought I was dying. And I walked over to this straight couple, and I grabbed the guy's arm and I said, can I just hold on to you so I will feel grounded? And he's like, sure. And I said, this is like an episode of Will and Grace. I don't know what that means. And that straight man's name was Albert Einstein. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the talking to Regina and Norman brought back a lot of memories, but they are just two of my favorite people, and I'm hoping that by reconnecting with them, we can continue to revisit that time, that special time, and, and Remember it anyway. I am happy to present for the world to hear Regina and Norman Golar, two of my dear friends from graduate school way back in 2000. We were in grad. I was in graduate school from 2007 to 2009. I got my master's. They got their PhD. They have two beautiful daughters. They live in Alabama. Here, they both are t- uh, professors of English. And this conversation ranges from talking about teaching English to being a member of a church and teaching Sunday school to how they've coped with COVID with their family during the lockdown and beyond. And I think people will get a lot out of this interview and really have a great deal of uh, the same respect that I have for these two wonderful, beautiful souls. Let's hear Regina and Norman, Doctors Golar. Oh, by the way, one thing I wanted to point out. Most of the interviews that we do this year probably are going to be through Zoom or some online format, and it is really difficult to get the sound as beautiful and wonderful as it normally is on our interviews that are recorded in person. So I just want to make sure that I point out that Fox did an amazing job taking this really rough audio from the Zoom that we have because we even had a really bad connection he, did, he found all these fancy things to do to make it as good as we could get it, as he could get it. And I just wanted to commend him for that, because it really does sound good compared to what it sounded like originally. It may still sound somewhat different than if we had just done it in person. But I just wanted to let you guys know that it does sound a lot better because of the hard work that Fox put into editing, and I appreciate that. What do you think? I've got my editor here. What do you think? You think it's. Yeah, yeah y'all are coming to me. Am I still cutting out a little bit? I'm
2: breaking up every now and
0: then. Yeah. Hold on. Let me just try something. Hello. I'm Fox, by the way. <laughs> this is Fox. This is Regina and Norman. <laughs> y'all, I really appreciate y'all doing this. So sweet of y'all to do this. It'll be painless. <laughs> I'm not uh, at all. As sassy as I was in grad school, I promise.
3: Be as sassy as you want to be for this.
0: (laughs) All right. Sorry, I'm back.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) That would be really rude of me to just leave you with it. (laughs) I think it's better now. Does it seem better now? All right. Well, let's get started. I am here with. Doctors, Regina and Norman Golar, I know you guys from University of Alabama. We were there many years ago, over a decade ago. You guys were a little more advanced than I was. I got my master's, but um, I remember you just being such wonderful people. And I was curious about touching base with you and seeing how you're doing nowadays. And I know um, these are interesting times to be teachers. We're all three I think we're all three still teachers, aren't we?
2: That's correct.
0: Okay. <laughs> so I, I wanted, I'm curious, what was always interesting to me was the fact that you guys were a married couple in school together. Weren't you married at the time that I knew you already?
3: Yes, we got married in 2007. So I had just graduated with my master's and was starting the PhD program when uh, we married.
0: How did you guys meet? Did you meet at oh. UA?
2: That's correct. We met through uh, one of a, a mutual supervisor. It was just a, a, you know just a regular meet and greet introduction, and I always tease her and tell her that she was the first one to kind of you know flirt, but she has a different story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it looks like she disagrees <laughs> strongly. <laughs> Did you both always? kind of have an idea that you wanted to be professors or that the field that you were in, that's what you wanted to do? Or were there other things that you tried first?
3: I absolutely knew that I wanted to be a professor from the beginning. And so for me, the answer is yes.
2: I can't say the same. It wasn't until graduate school where I then, you know, had a passion to teach. So everything became the reality of, you know, teaching undergraduate students and helping them along their respective ways. And lo and behold, I found out that I loved it. And it was, you know, it was through grad school where I uh, had that opportunity to to really understand it. Uh, Before that, I didn't have any idea concerning what my career would be. I thought about going into the medical field, but that was when I was leaving high school and going to, to college. And the reality hit in the middle of college where sciences were not my strong suit. So um, subject of English pretty much jail well with me. So then I went on to grad school and everything else, you know, was history.
0: When you were in grad school, are there things that you would not have expected that you now know about teaching at a, the college level that surprised you or that made it even better or that challenged you? What are some of the things you've learned over the last decade about it?
3: Well, uh, for me, I think uh, after teaching it at, at three different institutions, I have learned that each institution has its own personality its own environment, its own culture. And as you go from institution to institution, you have to really be willing to adapt to the culture of that institution and the types of students that that particular institution draws.
0: I couldn't agree more. Go ahead, Norman.
2: And you know, with me, it was a sense of two institutions, grad school and then my current institution. And... the the biggest impact or the biggest influence for me had to deal with the support system. You know, when you think about the support system, those who have already been teaching at that particular institution where they can share a little wisdom with you, a lot of those opportunities allowed me to then get a feel for the type of students that I would encounter. And, you know, we can go through all of the theory that we read in books but the reality is when you are standing in front of a classroom and you have students who are uh, bringing with them a lot of uh, baggage, I'll say baggage uh, for lack of a better word, uh, because that just, you know, it's a range between academic preparation to actual social um, challenges and, you know, the books, they don't really tell you about that. Um, And so it's a matter of, you know, pretty much understanding the climate and, the the culture of the students, as well as, you know, um, trying to get an understanding about them and ways to best, you know, navigate through the course and through the material.
0: Yeah, I was kind of shocked when I got into teaching that I wasn't, the one area I don't think I was as prepared as I should have been was teaching developmental. And I was surprised at how many of those classes I would have over the course of the last decade, more where I am now, I started at a military institution and I didn't have as many developmental classes. But I, I really have found that to be one of the biggest challenges for me because it's not just, it's like you just said, there are all those things that come along with that in terms of just being ready for college or not, or feeling like an imposter. I know a lot with that's a A term that I've heard a lot, the imposter syndrome, where you have to help students realize they do belong there. So a lot of that I didn't feel prepared for. Do y'all have a lot of developmental English classes?
3: Um, Currently, no, I'm not teaching developmental. I taught developmental at two of my three institutions, and um, I agree with you (laughs) and and with with Norman here, the reality for me was realizing the gap that exists between all of that literature that we read, you know, all of those seminars that the three of us took together, and then what it actually feels like when you are in the classroom dealing with that particular population. And I remember one particular instance in which I just could not understand why my students could not understand subject of agreement. Um, because I was just teaching my heart out. And then the day that I realized they could not understand subject verb agreement because they did not recognize nouns and verbs, mm-hmm. you learn that there are different le- levels of developmental English. And so um, currently I'm not teaching developmental. You know, that could change any given semester.
2: I have uh, taught developmental English. Uh, quite consistently uh, for maybe the last five years and a lot of what you pointed out and a lot of what uh, Regina has mentioned is so true. And to think about that imposter syndrome where students say, well, you know, I came here because, you know, my grandmother told me to come or my so-and-so told me to come. And I have to allow them to understand. Well, there's a reason they wanted you to come, and uh, your your opportunity is now. And so let's let's get rid of this whole idea about you know English is not my strong suit. Let's get that out of the way. All we need to understand is we got to get you to practice more with it. And you know we want to just focus on the curriculum, but we also have to touch them in other areas in terms of uh, email etiquette, um, in terms of how you present yourself day to day. Don't just, you know, roll out of the bed and come into classroom, take the time to, you know, do something once you wake, once you awaken. And so, you know, we have all of those little tidbits that we try to instill in them, uh, kind of molding them, helping them be a better them. Um, and so, you know, the books don't really tell you that and you may get, you know, the, Mike Roses in the world who says, well, it's something more than just the curriculum that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I struggle with a lot in terms of developmental and all that that you're talking about is I, I find that grammar in and of itself is a very touchy thing to teach. And uh, I remember a lot of stuff in grad school reading about students' rights to their own language and those kinds of things. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I have a really hard time sometimes. I talk about code switching a lot and code shifting, whatever you want to call it. Helping students actually say something of importance and of interest. I think students need to know grammar, but sometimes I feel like it's just such a negative thing in their head that that's one of the things that makes them feel like they're not worthy of English because they have bad grammar or whatever. What do y'all think about that? (laughs) I'm just rambling. (laughs)
3: For me, uh, I had to realize the divide that exists between the literature versus the reality that when I was hired as a professor and I would sit on search committees and interview people that when the candidate left the room and we had discussion that the committee members would discuss their language and that was as much a part of their academic training as anything else. And so, even though I, I still believe in students' right to their own language, I also understand that the reality demands that you have to fit the environment in which you are placed. sometimes, being able um, to take on the language Um, of mainstream culture as much as we may not necessarily agree with that philosophically, depending on your position. I don't want to offend anyone, but uh, the the reality is that when people get ready to hire you into their company, they, they look at how you present yourself and they listen to how you speak as well so again, um, I think that you you mentioned code switching, uh, or what we call bi-dialectalism. I think that that is absolutely a good skill for our students to have, and for them to understand that you are not denying your culture, but the same way you switch out of your pajamas <laughs> before you go into the you know the classroom, or you're supposed to at least. <laughs> This similar, you know, the way that you talk, you know, at Buffalo Fields over some wings, you know, and the Pepsi, may not be the way that you speak in an interview. And the reason I say that is because I'm a strong proponent of, of strong economics, of, of finances. And, and if mainstream culture, which has the finances that's going to help you to get a house, it's going to help you to put your children through college one day if that is what it demands then i don't believe that our students should allow something like language to keep them from being a home owner and of course you know there are other ways you know to do to get around those barriers but everyone has not been called to be an entrepreneur some of us have to go through those chains in life When I say chains, I don't mean bondage. I mean chains as in chains of command in order to to get those financial resources.
0: That's a really strong argument, Regina. Gosh, I have missed you guys. (laughs) That's really, (laughs) that's a very compelling argument. Go ahead, Norman. I'm I'm sure you had something else to add to that.
2: (laughs) Just a different approach. Um, When I think about the students and, you know, we have in the classroom, those who feel very comfortable answering questions aloud and those who are reserved. And many times those who are reserved, they speak in a language that's most comfortable for them. So then you may have those others in the classroom who are, I like to consider language bullies. They start laughing and snickering. But what I like to do is I like to empower that contribution from that student who didn't feel comfortable speaking in the first place. And so what I would do is I would say that's a, you know, I would confirm that that's a great uh, response to the question. And then I would show them different ways on how, if we were placed in a different setting, how that can be communicated. Um, You know, many times you do not want to shut down any student who has the courage to speak because we found out that many students do not feel comfortable reading aloud, yet alone, speaking spontaneously on a question. And so I tried to harness uh, a little bit of their insecurity but turn it around to make it uh, an empowering moment for them so that way, guess what? Someone else in the classroom thought the same thing but did not have the courage to speak. So then when you hear my confirmation or affirmation of someone's response, now the whole classroom is buzzing, right? And, and, you know, I do have those moments where when I sit with students, I have the opportunity to, you know, pretty much share with those students one-on-one in in my office. And I would explain to them the differences between uh, the way you express it this way versus the way you express it another way. And many times they'll say, oh goodness, he's about to preach. But I, you know, I tell them. I say, look, you know, you know, my faith is strong in the Lord. So I'm going to reference some scriptures that's going to help you. And you know, I say, okay, I won't even go to scriptures. I'll just tell you about certain individuals in the Bible. And I say, you know, look at Moses. He was a, he was a stutterer, and and many times he did not feel comfortable having to speak to a large crowd. And I say, even though you may not be a stutterer, think about your stuttering as your insecurity about what language you are most comfortable using. Well, the only thing is, you just haven't had enough practice in it. So let's start practicing what you would say versus the other way in which you can be communicated to a large, diverse crowd. And, and we go through that from time to time, and lo and behold, they leave the office and say, you know, thank you, and of course, when we're in the classroom, they revert back to their comfortable language, and then we just go again, and I say, guess what? It's all about practice, so you know, A lot of what we do is kind of goes back to that first point I expressed. You know, We would like to focus on the curriculum, but we have moments where bi-dialectalism is in our face. And we have moments in which we can help educate our students to understand. Well, you understand you cannot go in to this interview talking this way, uh, trying to make sure you have a, a equal level playing field that will grant you the opportunity to make it to the next step in
0: the interview process. So. I, I would love to have some sort of statewide symposium on these kinds of questions. I always wonder if it's harder. I, I know it's harder for people who are not in the same language community to have those conversations. I think probably even harder one-on-one. I feel like if I could, when I address it as a class, I always use my mother as an example of, you know, she'll say, She's very, very southern right she'll she'll use the wrong pronoun or su- the subject verb agreement thing could be wrong, but no one thinks that she's stupid I mean I don't she's a very intelligent person, so I always use her as an example. I wonder if we have more conversations as a discipline even uh across cultures and across you know racial lines, especially I think it might be important because I, I wonder how it complicates things if a white teacher is, is talking to a black student about code shifting or code switching or, or bi-dialectalism. I can't say y'all. I'm not bi-dialectalism. <laughs> not bi are you are fine. <laughs> I'm editing that out.
2: Knowing where we are and knowing that we have individuals who are grounded in the language culture of where they are, we have to adapt as well, right? So one thing you talked about you said you know your grandmother to be an intelligent woman mother or mother sorry <laughs> it's it's a sense of you understanding guess what i understand her and that's what matters right and then you also talked about how maybe students will receive a lesson coming from a teacher who is not of the same race or same culture I think if there's a sense of conversation taking place, at least it's an attempt for all parties to understand, okay, this is why I'm expressing it the way I'm expressing it. This is the reason why I'm sharing it with you. And then in this whole process, I too will learn from you being the student. uh, You know, I have times where we would kind of joke around before class starts. And, you know, I would use a a slang that they currently use. And they just laugh. They just (laughs) pretty much fall out of the chairs. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to help them understand I'm human too. And I even tell stories of my upbringing where uh, a term that we would use had been used inappropriately. But I didn't dare try to correct the person who said it incorrectly because that was one of my elders. I just went along because I understood what she was trying to convey to me. And, you know, we have those moments where, is this enough in terms of me being a person that I am, trying to convey a message to the people they are, is this enough? And we just have to understand everyone comes from different cultures and environments, and we have to, you know, feel comfortable with not knowing and feel comfortable with wanting to know as long as it's within the same, you know, boundaries of what we're trying to cover in the classroom or even outside of the classroom.
0: I love that feel comfortable with not knowing and feel comfortable with wanting to know. That's really, that's really powerful. So let me ask you this. I'm, I'm shifting away from this just a little bit. Do y'all teach during the summer? Are you teaching any, either of you teaching this summer? You are. How have you been able to shift to these fully online classes with students who didn't necessarily sign up for online classes? Has it been, what has been your experience Uh, Regina.
3: I was actually just talking to Norman about this yesterday. Um, Basically, I am thinking more and more these days about the theory survival of the fittest, because even though he was nowhere near technology when he, you know, posited that theory, it seems to be applicable in so many settings right now. Restaurants are seeing this survival of the fittest going on. Businesses are in a competition of survival of the fittest. Um, Colleges are currently in a competition of survival of the fittest. And this idea that only the strong survive. And I'm actually beginning to see this play out in the classroom. That those who are able to adapt to their environment are the ones who are thriving and those who are not willing to change gears, who are not willing to put in that extra time, who are not willing to watch the videos that I post because it doesn't matter how many videos I post I'm um, teaching, if they don't watch the videos, then it does absolutely no good. And so in this arena, in which we are limited in what we can offer our students through no fault of our own. um, We don't get to decide what our institutions do on these different levels. So I have to teach what I am assigned to teach and I do the best that I can do. But the students who traditionally have never taken online classes and they are finding themselves flailing, well, All I can do is make myself available as much as possible. And I have some students who email me seriously every day. (laughs) (laughs) I know that I can expect an email from that student today (laughs) because those students are going to do what is necessary to get that understanding, to get that level of comprehension. They are going to survive. The other students seem to say, well, I don't understand and then they give up. And for me, that was one of the hardest parts of transitioning to online because I did not realize the power that even on a collegiate level that educators have in encouraging our students. When we switched over in March and I had, Good students who just dropped out, not because they didn't have technology, they emailed me to say, I don't have the drive to do this. And I was just shocked that me literally walking up, you know, in in the class and saying, hey, how are you doing? You know, and just chatting for 30 seconds was encouragement to that student to continue coming to class. You know, or, or talking with that student after class, I did not realize that sometimes the only encouragement our students have is from us. And so not being able to encourage them the way that I was doing <laughs> uh, has been really tough on me because I see good students who don't have anyone else to encourage them. And for whatever reason, they don't have that inner drive, that inner ambition. All we can do is the best that we can do. And, and that's something that I tell you know my older daughter, all you can do is the best that you can do. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's going to be interesting to see the students who are able to, to switch over because this is a skill that is actually required in the workforce. You have to be able to adapt to wherever they put you, whatever committee you are placed on, whatever institution that hires you, you have to have that adaptability. Survival of the fit is as awful as that sounds. And I hate it, even as I'm saying it, it sounds absolutely awful, but I think that's where we are as a nation. And I think that's where we are in our educational institutions that the students are going to have to find that drive to adapt to the environments that we have right now.
0: Yeah. I hear you. I, I really hear you. It, it is sad. That the, something about that sounds awful, but at the same time, what you're saying makes sense that you do have to adapt. And I love what you said about how important you didn't realize how important encouraging people was. Cause I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that either. Just a simple act of encouragement on a daily basis or when they see us in class. And I hadn't thought about that. And then you try to do that over the phone or in the email or whatever, and it's not quite the same or in a zoom, which they don't, they don't like very much. My students don't seem to like zoom very much. Have you been, did you have to teach online? You probably did in the spring, right? Norman.
2: That's correct. And you no, know, my experience was a little different. I, um, uh, I wanted to hold on to some semblance of reality with the students be, because we're talking about you know, the developmental course. And you know, those students didn't expect to have online instruction, but I had to make sure that I you know did my part. As you know Regina said, I have, I have to do what I know is best and to the best of my own ability. And so what I did was I still held uh, virtual meetings at the times our class normally met. So, just like in face to face online, students are late <laughs> chiming in.
0: <laughs>
2: but here's the thing because I realized what they were up against, many of them were just leaving work and trying to get to a reliable Wi Fi connection. Many of them uh, were uh, either just leaving grandmother's house to go over to cousin's house because cousin has internet connection, or some just, you know, class starts at 10 o'clock. Student would say, well, my alarm went off at 9.55, so I just, you know, rolled out of bed and making my way to the library. I did not discourage them. I did not pretty much badmouth them. I did not reprimand them because I understood that they were putting forth an effort to try to make this work just as I was putting forth an effort to try to make it as real as possible. And so if a student finally chimes in 15 minutes after the start time, guess what I'm saying? All right, are you set I'll give you five minutes to get set up. All right, you ready? Okay, here's what we have on tap. And we would go back and forth having a conversation. I still ended the class at the time it needed to be ended. They still were able to get in the information that I needed to share with them. And thankfully, they emailed me if something else came up. So then we still had that electronic communication going on. But you know, I tried to make sure that I had those meetings taking place as though we were meeting in the classroom to kind of give them a sense of like what she was saying, encouragement. Right here it is. We're distant, but now we have an opportunity to see each other. Now we have an opportunity to kind of motivate you to say, "Oh, I can't stay in the bed long. I got to get ready to get uh, log in to to, to uh, connect to this uh, conference call." So you know, it's it's interesting to say the least of how all of this has, you know, pretty much shaped. But I think once we continue to, you know, reach down within us and then maintain the sense of integrity of our institutions, uh, this could be one of those wonderful things that, that, you know, just happened to take place. And now we're following along the the, the trend. And, And like she said, hey, businesses are changing the way they do things now. Those who did not have curbside pickup, now they have curbside pickup, right? And we're like, why didn't you have this all along? <laughs> we, everybody didn't want to go into the store before the pandemic.
0: Like, why couldn't I pick up my dog food at the curb before?
2: Exactly.
0: I do think that we can be, the faculty especially, can be leaders as much as we can. Some of us at some institutions don't have as much of a as a power as some of, at others, but I think that this is an opportunity for us to really hone what we do to, to become better at what we do. I just hope that we don't see more and more departments going to more and more online class. I think that hybrid is a, is a nice situation sometimes, but some students that I have just don't, they really need to be in the class. They need that encouragement, but I'm also not so stubborn that I won't change. Uh, whatever I learn from this, I hope I'm able to, to make my teaching better, you know? Um, I'm curious about, cause I don't have kids, what you guys think about, uh, how you're handling the situation with your own children who might be going, may or may not be going to school in the fall. Do you have, do you know, have, is there a plan where you are for, for children and uh, younger kids?
3: Um, Tuscaloosa, everyone is starting virtually for the first nine weeks but you get to choose whether you want to do virtual for the entire school year or whether you want to go back to the classroom when they allow it.
0: Do you guys, have you made up your mind? Do you know what you're going to do? I have friends who, who are just torn up about this decision.
3: We have decided the virtual option. We're going to keep the girls at home.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's what I would decide if I were a parent, but I I know everybody has different you know, factors in their decision-making. I know a lot of people that I work with have older people who are my age have older parents. And, and so the children would then be around their grandparents. So they feel like they have to make a decision of, well, if I send my kids to school, then they can't be around these people in the family. And that just doesn't necessarily work out because a lot of my friends who are teachers then wouldn't have anyone to take care of their kids when they're at school. Cause we're supposed to be in, in the fall, half the time. We're supposed to be on campus half the time and at home half the time. So that becomes problematic for parents of younger children, I think.
3: Absolutely. No doubt about it. And um, I'm reading so, so many news articles uh, daily, just trying to keep up with everything that's going on. And my heart truly goes out. I mean, my heart goes out to everyone. But my heart truly goes out to single mothers who are the only income in their home. And they really, many of them don't have a choice, you know, either is keep a roof over our heads or the other option. And so, you know, which is to send them, you know, send them back or keep them home. And, it is a tough situation all the way around. I I think that so many times i thought about the Great Depression.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I teach literature, you know, every semester, you know, I'm going to review the Great Depression because of the literature, you know, that came out during that time. But I have always thought to myself, I wonder what life would have been like, you know, to have lived during that time. And... This may not be the Great Depression, but it is certainly one of the historical events that will go into history books. What we're going through is just as significant. But uh, we're keeping the girls home, whatever that means. For us, we will have to make adjustments. Uh, we're going to keep them home.
0: Yeah, I think you said that really well. What? How have you guys been handling this? just since it began in terms of your own psychological health, your spiritual health, how has it been for you as parents, as people, as people of faith. I know it affects church too, you know. How how has it been? How are you?
2: We you know, there are moments where there are low moments and you know, you want a sense of life outside of, you know, your own family unit. But then there are other moments where we get a little creative, right? We say, all right, we have a backyard. Let's go out there in the backyard. We have to go to the, you know, to to the mailbox. Well, let's all just take a ride to the mailbox. Um, you know, to try to get out a little bit. And and the other part, we understood that, okay, if there's a moment where it will usually be me, if there are moments where I have to go out, that's where my faith in God kicks up to say, okay, Lord my faith in you takes place when I am unable to do anything within what you have granted me to be able to do. And so now I have to trust that you would take care of me in my going out and in my coming in. And, you know, when I think about that, those moments where, you know, you have to do a pickup delivery from a store. Well, okay. Again, that's the moment it was no other option for me to get this to the house. So, Lord, I trust that you will bring me and you will take me. And so, you know, at at the end of the day, it's more so, I guess you can say, calming to know that I could rely on him for those things that seem too much for me to hold on my own shoulders. And and when we think about the girls, yes, we, we know that they may get tired of one another. So we have moments where all of us are either watching the program together, eating together, we have moments where, like I said, we would go out, have a little sun time and fun time in the backyard um, and, and try, try to be as accommodating to them because their realities had been changed also. Um, we were thankful during the spring when the professor, I mean, when the teachers had the online instruction um, because it gave our oldest an opportunity to see her friends virtually. And I would ask her, did you do everything you need to do? So you can, you can connect um, 30 minutes or 20 minutes before the start time, because I knew her friends were on that early as well. So it gave her opportunity to socialize with her friends that she so missed. And you know, I, I don't know how the learning management system will run for the school system here with Schoolology, um, But if there is an opportunity where she can log in early to have some type of interaction with the rest, then I'm going to try to, you know, make sure that she has that chance. Um, Because that's a part of her upbringing too, that social interaction and having to laugh and tell jokes on that age level where it's just confusing to me, but they just all crack up and have a good time. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, you know, it's different. It has moments where it's low, but then there are
3: moments where they're just so great. And I would like to add that um, in addition to what uh, my husband has said, that each girl, even, you know, each one had their meltdown moment. And it came um, at different times and it was maybe about, I don't know, Weeks into into the pandemic, and we re- we took it seriously, and we we literally locked down. You know, <laughs> we weren't at the stores. You know, we were not in the mall. We locked down, and so I remember uh, each one having that meltdown moment. You know that e- because even though we were all together, you know, the four of us, it was still isolation from the world at large. And it's one thing that we did for one of the girls uh, because we were not doing restaurants either. But I told Norm, I said, you know, we have got to help them. So just going to through the drive-through to McDonald's, you know, and it helped so much just to be able to to eat McDonald's one time, you know, and. I hope no one crucifies me for saying that I fed my children McDonald's. But <laughs> if that's what they needed for their emotional health, then that's what we need to, to give. And then another time, we just did a FaceTime with my sister and my niece, you know, so that they could just see their faces, you know, even though they could not be together. So emotional health is just this serious as physical health and so uh, I think that when you're dealing with children as well as yourself you can't only take into consideration your physical health you have to monitor emotional health and mental health as well
0: yeah I've learned to be very grateful for a lot of the things that I have you know that all of us have really I was reading this book about Anne Bradstreet and all the things that they had to do to prepare for a winter in new England (laughs) about, you know, and making sure that that all the food storage that they had, that they didn't go through it too quickly or, you know, how to prepare the food before the winter came. And I thought, you know, we are lucky, blessed, fortunate that we have our grocery stores and our, you know, connections to things, because imagine what this would have been like if you couldn't pick up something at the store, at the curb or whatever. So, and imagine what it's like, what it's like for people who can't afford to do that. I mean, it's just, there's, it's just, you're right. It's historic and it's, it's a lot, but did you guys find anything interesting or creative about yourselves or did you, did you do anything that was unexpected or were you able to be productive and creative in some way during this time or you just been relaxing? What are you doing? (laughs)
2: i I would say my inner chef came out more and i I found it you know pretty wonderful that she would watch cooking videos with me uh because even before the pandemic i would sit down and watch a cooking show just because you know (laughs) and so now we're trying different things in the kitchen you know um didn't really think we could do so much with groceries until now. (laughs) So yeah, you know, a lot of those things, I I think for me that has been uh, pretty nice because I have always been the one who, I always wanted to be home even before the pandemic. And I will always say, oh, you know, we have something in the kitchen and she would be tired. And even though I would be tired, it was like, well, okay, let's go get something to eat from out, you know? Um, but even now, it's like, yeah, my inner chef has awakened. So, yeah, I think
0: that's that's the cool thing. That's awesome. I've started making biscuits a lot on Sunday mornings, or pancakes, or the dead of night. Or the dead of night. Fox is reminding me the other night. I woke up because I saw somebody's recipe online about baking them in butter, like you would not just like this melted butter. It's just sitting in the bottom of the pan. You put the batter in there and just spread it out and cut it into nines, and then just stick it in. You guys, come on, that's good. <laughs> I love a biscuit. What about you? What about you, Regina? What, have you been cooking, painting, writing, singing?
3: <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, I've been still busy, actually, um, because the summer semester, as you know, mm. you know, you know, you're still trying to get in about the same amount of material. So i uh, been busy teaching and then concerning my inner artist, um, I would love for her to come out, but I don't have time for her to come come out. But what I, I did, um, make sure that the girls were able to paint. So they have their easels, you know, and I let them go outside. So they're outside, you know, they're little Picassos out there. So it's great for them. Um, but I think really the biggest thing that I've had to do, because not only, um, the businesses going online and the uh, education institutions, but the churches as well. And so uh, our church, which our church is long distance for us anyway, we commute to church. And so um, the pastor of our church has been moving all of our services online, not just Sunday morning. So we actually not were <laughs> recruited to get our Sunday school online using Zoom. And so, having to build a face-to-face interaction, but put it online, you know, with people in a rural area, many of whom had never even heard of Zoom, quite a task, but it has, we've been successful. As a matter of fact, he uh, emailed me yesterday and told us we were doing a fantastic job. And so, that was great, you know, but... You know, I mentioned the emotional health and the mental health and the physical health, um, but your spiritual health is also uh, something that has to be maintained um, during the pandemic and throughout your life, not just in the pandemic. So really, that virtual Sunday school has been taking up quite a bit of time.
0: Well, Fox is throwing me the message that our time is almost up. So I'm going to wrap everything up. By saying again, thank you so much. This has been a, it's been great hearing from you. I think that you are two of the most wonderful people on the planet, and uh, you're just you're just very nice to have done this to come do my little podcast. This is my way of being a little creative when I don't when I'm not grading five thousand papers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I really do appreciate you guys uh, doing this. Do you have any last minute? Anything you want to say that I didn't ask you that you just want the world to know? Well,
3: uh, when I think back to grad school, honestly, grad school is one of the most memorable best times of my life. For most people, it's high school or they will say college. No, for me, it's grad school. And I just want you to know, Jimmy, that it, I mean, you are in that group of memories for me, and I'm not going to call names, but you know who we were there with. You know, I want to make you know maintain people's privacy, but, you know, just that time that we spent together was the most special time of my life, being able to interact with people on an intellectual level, and just, and we were friends. We weren't just, you know, in the class together. You know, I, I felt like we were friends. We were. And so to see your face, you know, just be able to talk to you, which, you know, as you were asking us questions, I was thinking to myself, well, I want to know what he thinks, you know, about this. He's man. about you. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew we were supposed to be, you know, responding. But like, what, what, what do you think, Jimmy? <laughs> but it's just, just thank you for the opportunity. And I just really, I miss you and our, our whole grad school crew. I really do.
0: Thank you. I do too. That was a very special time, even though I was a little out of my mind crazy, but it was still a great time.
2: (laughs) And I just, I just want to tell you, Jimmy, um, you know, stay encouraged. The, what you, what you are doing right now, that is your outlet to responding to isolation. And, and, you know, this grants you an opportunity to have, conversations that will last for the ages because you are able to record and revisit. Um, and and are, I'm sure there are s- inspirational messages brought to you from whomever you had interviewed. And now this is an opportunity where you can you have that at your fingertips. Um, so just you know continue to be encouraged. You are doing a good thing to spread light on the positive um, amidst what's going on right now. So I I commend you. I thank you for even considering us. (laughs) And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. This is your way of being sane. Then by all means.
0: (laughs) Thanks again. You guys are beautiful and I love you and thank you so much, okay? Thank Thank you. you. We love you
3: too, Jimmy.
0: All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Where You Are was created by Jimmy Ellenberg, and edited by fox williams our intro is small piano from the Ant Hill album by patricia taxon all music was used with permission the views expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution for which i have ever worked or will ever work thanks for listening have a nice day wherever you are